So we have been working our way through Peter's first letter. Um, We are in the middle of chapter 2, and I'm going to cover the rest of chapter 2 because it's really one unit. In fact, it kind of goes well into chapter 3, but I'm going to stop at the last verse in uh, chapter 2. It's 15 verses, and we're going to focus really on the first uh, 10 verses where Paul, 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 (laughs) I'm so used to preaching Paul. Peter, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now you say, well, so were were these people scattered? No, they're in, they're they're actually in Turkey, modern day Turkey. Um, But Peter uses the language of exile because this is not our home, right? So that's why he's using uh, these terms. They're in their, they're in their homeland, but they're, they're not of this world. So I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So general command, fight sin, but he's going to get into specific passions that can destroy our witness. So it's all tied together. He's going to talk about those passions that can destroy our witness amongst the Gentiles. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And he's using that term to mean unbelievers. Uh, to keep your, uh, your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Key term, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice he doesn't say if they speak of you as evildoers. It's when it happens. It's going to happen. And notice, they're going to call you evildoers. Your righteous behavior is going to be called evil. Okay? Um, Now, you're to act in an honorable way, so when they accuse you... um, they, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Interesting term. Um, many people think it means when the Lord returns, but others think it means on the day of their visitation, when the Lord convicts them of their need for Christ. Okay? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. There's the theme verse. Be subject. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, God has instituted government and one way to behave that brings him glory and silences the unbeliever is to acknowledge that government is good, it is from God, and you submit to the governor and to the emperor. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What Peter is addressing here is what Paul addresses in Romans 3 and in Romans 6, 
where people say, oh, we're saved by grace. Therefore, let's sin away. No, you are free, but don't use your freedom in Christ, the grace of Christ, as a cover-up for sin. Use the grace of Christ to fight your sin, is what he's saying. Now, another theme here. Okay, you could put this on your, your refrigerator. Verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, honor everyone. You go, oh, that's, that sounds Christian. Love the brotherhood, yep, okay. Fear God, yep. Oh yeah, the everyone includes the emperor. All right. Twice, he singles out the emperor as one deserving of honor. Okay. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, honor the emperor and honor your slave master when he beats you. All right? One more, and I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So, I think that's all pretty self-explanatory and non-controversial. Uh, honor the emperor, submit to your slave master when he beats you, wives, submit to your husbands. You're dismissed, have a good day. <laughs> and you have to clean up my mess. <laughs> all right, so... Let me just, uh, as you look at this paragraph, let me give you just the main point, the principle here that ties these things all together, which is this. Honorable submission to authority glorifies God and draws unbelievers to him. The theme through all three of these things is that honorable submission to human authority, we're talking about, it glorifies God and it draws unbelievers to him. So let me ask you a question. How's your evangelism going? How are you doing in your conversations bringing up the gospel and talking about the Lord and leading people to Christ? How's that going? Might an attitude of rebellion against the authority that God has established be harming your witness. You say, I wonder why I don't get to talk to men. Are you exuding an attitude of rebellion against authority? Now, somebody might say, well, I don't agree with this person or the boss, or but the people I talk to, we disagree together, and that's an evangelism tactic. No, it's not. That's like saying, um, well, I know I shouldn't gossip, but when the people I gossip with at work, we, we all hate the boss. 
wait a minute. Even the unbeliever knows that it's wrong. So when we participate in it with them, we may think we're buddy-buddying up, but they know in their heart that you as a Christian are doing wrong. Okay? So the Apostle Paul basically says this about governmental authority. Let every person, this is Romans 13, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the principle is this. God's a God of order. He has set up authority structures in the society, in the workplace, in the family, in the church. And submission to authority from the heart glorifies him and it reaches, it speaks to the unbeliever. Okay? Now, it'd be interesting if, if little thought bubbles popped up over your head and we could read one another's questions. But what about this? What about that? What about... So, this next section, what I want to do, is raise a bunch of objections and exceptions. Okay? Five objections and exceptions um, that, that I'm sure... If we were to sit around a table and talk about this, um, I'm sure these things would come up. Right? Number one... What if the authority demands that I sin? Okay. Are we to just blindly follow whatever the authority says? No. No. Remember, the apostles, they're preaching Christ out in the streets of Jerusalem, and they're arrested, and then an angel lets them out, and they're preaching again, and Peter and the apostles are brought in before the Sanhedrin, the very guys that killed Jesus, right? The ones that set up Pilate to have him killed. And here's what happens. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest, this is Caiaphas, questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Okay? Jesus commanded us to go into the world, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, and preach, and here you're telling us not to, we're going to obey God, not you. Okay? Now, some of you are going, yes, here's my verse. This is my life verse. But, but, right? Um, there's a way to challenge the authority, but still give honor to the authority. All right? Think about this. Daniel in the Old Testament, was set up. The, the uh, other wise men 
duped the king into passing a law that you can't pray to anyone but the king. So uh, Daniel says, I'm, I'm not going to obey that. And he prays, and the king has to throw Daniel into the den of lions. Yet God miraculously shuts the mouth of the lions. Now, you know, we, we, pay, we have like little coloring pages where Daniel's in the corner petting a lion. I, I don't, th- I, that must have been terrifying to be in a lion's den all night. Next morning, the king rushes to the lion's den. The stone is removed and Daniel's alive. Now, if you were Daniel, what would you tell that king? Here's, what, here's how he addresses the king. Then Daniel said to the king, Oh, king, live forever. He honors the king. Right? Paul is arrested. And he has to stand trial before several governors and then King Herod Agrippa. There's a bunch of different Herods. It's tough to keep them straight, but this is King Herod Agrippa. And he's, he's been set up also. And he is unjustly on trial. And he stands before the king who could set him free. And how does he address the king? You dirty, rotten, no. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Right? There's a way to honorably disagree with the authority. But do you have a heartfelt respect and honor for the authority structures that God has set up? Right? You know, I, we've taught our, our kids when you're, uh, you, you address, if you're playing on a sports team, you address the coach as coach or sir. Especially if I'm the coach. If a policeman pulls you over, yes, sir, yes, officer. Um, People have asked me, and I learned this early on, what what should my kids call call me? And early on, I said, just have them call me Brian. And then a family said, you know what? We would like to teach our kids to respect authority, can they call you Pastor? Should, be, should it be Pastor Smith, Pastor Brian? I said, call me Pastor Brian because I do want them to appro- be able to approach me. There's the Brian, the friendly part. Um, but yeah, the term, not because I'm on some ego trip, but it teaches respect for authority. You know? um, we live in Batavia. It seems like everywhere I go, I run into the mayor. He lives at McDonald's. <laughs> and yesterday, was it yesterday or two, uh, on Friday, um, I was running and ran by the police station. Who's out weed in the garden? The mayor. And uh, I, oftentimes I'm running and you know what I do? I go, hello, your honor. I don't know, does the mayor, is that a term for the mayor, honor? So? Um, there are lines of authority. 
And, and what I'm asking you is not just to verbally change your tongue, but to change your heart. Okay. Second objection. But don't we have a right and a responsibility to object in a democracy? Isn't it our duty to make our political views known and object when we disagree? And the answer is, yeah, we do have a right and even a responsibility uh, to make our voice known. But let me say this. I think living out honor for rules today in a democracy is much more difficult than living 2,000 years ago. You know why? Back then, there was a king. <laughs> you didn't march with a sign in front of the king, right? You find yourself beheaded. Pretty simple, right? Now, we live in a democracy where political dialogue and in involvement um, is, is part of the deal, part of the system. So, here's the question. Does living in a democracy nullify this command? Honor everyone. Those are the people you're talking to, talking with, disagreeing with. And honor the emperor. Does living in a democracy nullify this? Now, um, some Christians would say, I'm going to honor those who are honorable. Those who are not honorable don't deserve my honor. Well, two things. One, do you know who Peter's emperor was? Nero. Who crucified him upside down and chopped off the head of the Apostle Paul. Who set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians and then burned them. Who beat up his, wife, his pregnant wife and killed her. Who killed his own mother. This is the guy we're talking about. And Peter writes, honor the emperor. So, um, just some thoughts on political speech. As you watch cable news or listen to radio or on Facebook or whatever, I would encourage you to, first of all, observe how quickly talking about issues turns into insults. From what do you think about this particular issue to you idiot, all right? If you got a $5 bill this next week for every time you observe that happen, you'd have at least a $5 bill, all right? Watch how quickly dialogue, actual, and dialogue's good turns into demonizing. You know what demonizing is? Demonizing is saying not only is the other side wrong, but they're evil. Goes on all the time. And empathizing is, okay, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I, to just simply emoting, angry, 
Okay. So just observe how uh, th that transition, how quickly that goes on and how we're surrounded by that. And then question, catch yourself going from issues to insults, dialogue to demonizing, empathizing to emoting. Okay. And ag again, I'm not here to give you rules of what you can or can't say. I do think this is helpful. Realize you have to stand before Jesus and give an account for whether you did this. How you doing? Okay. Number C. Letter three. Here's awake. See how I reversed. All right. Must I always stay in a difficult situation? Particularly the one about um, slaves. Submit to your masters. Must I, I, I find myself as a Christian in a really bad situation. Must I stay in it? Does getting beat up by my master, uh, is it any more spiritual than getting out of slavery? Now, um, I believe the answer to that is, the answer to the question is not necessarily. Must I stay always in a difficult situation? Speaking of slavery, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. So, so imagine you're sitting in the Corinthian church, you're a slave, and you get this letter from the Apostle Paul. Are you a slave? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Oh, thanks. Right? Um, but, but get the big picture. The big picture is this. Are you primarily concerned about your life situation or are you more concerned with the fact that God has you in a specific place for a specific reason to witness for him? Okay? But then, so, so the, the general truth of this paragraph is whatever situation you were in when you were saved, you should consider that you're calling from God. But, and this is in, in the ESV, it's in parentheses here. There's no parentheses in the Greek. But this is a, this is a side thought. The main thought is stay where you are. Right? But the side thought is this. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Oh, if, if you can buy yourself out of... Slavery, if, you, if it's the year of Jubilee and you could be set free, by all means, if you can get a promotion, do it, okay? But is that the obsession of your life? He's saying you should be obsessed with being a witness, right? And he goes on to say, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. You're free in Christ, even though you're in chains, Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Then he sums it up again. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. If, if we spent as much time executing our assignment 
as we did being discontent with our assignment, maybe we would be better witnesses. But must I always stay? Is it more spiritual to stay in a difficult situation? Not necessarily. Now, um, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was a preacher in England. And he wasn't authorized by the government. But he preached anyways. And he was arrested. For 12 years, he was in prison. He had four children who would occasionally visit. One of, the, one of his daughters was blind. It just killed him when he saw his blind daughter and knew that he couldn't be there for her. Now, he could have walked out if he would just pledge not to preach the gospel. Now, let me ask you a question. Would it have been wrong for Bunyan to say, my family needs me more than I need to preach the gospel? That's an interesting discussion. Talk amongst yourselves. No. Um, here's what he writes. Thou mayest do in this as it is in thy heart. If it is in thy heart to fly, fly. Escape. Go. If it be in thy heart to stand, stand. Anything but a denial of the truth. He that flies has warrant to do so, and he that stands has warrant to do so. Yea, the same man may both fly and stand as the call and working of God within his heart may be. And then he, he actually proof texts this. He says, Moses fled and Moses stood. David fled and David stood. Jeremiah fled and Jeremiah stood. Christ withdrew himself. Christ stood. Paul fled and Paul stood. And there's references to each of these situations. There are few rules in this case. The man himself is best able to judge concerning his present strength and what weight this or that argument has upon his heart to stand or fly. Do not fly out of a slavish fear, but rather because flying is an ordinance of God opening a door for the escape of some, which door is opened by God's providence and the escape countenanced by God's word. Remember, the apostles were in jail. Peter later on is arrested and in jail, and the angel opens the door. Nope, it's more godly to stay. No, get out. The angels get, get, get out. Right? Now, have you ever mentioned a guy named Piper? He, commenting on Bunyan, says this, Let us be slow to judge the missionary who chooses death rather than escape. And let us be slow to judge the missionary who chooses life. Okay? So, must I always stay in a difficult situation? Not necessarily. Okay? Now, we've raised the issue of slavery. Um... That's, that's a hot topic today in critics of Christianity. Right? How can the Bible endorse slavery? Let me give you two responses. Okay? One is this. Regulation is not the same as endorsement. Okay? Regulation of an institution is not the same thing as endorsement. 
The Bible does regulate slavery. doesn't necessarily mean it's endorsing it. I was, I'm, I'm reading through Deuteronomy. Um, there's a section in there in Deuteronomy that talks about a man who has two wives and he loves one more than the other wife. Don't treat the children unequally. All right? Now, the overall picture in Scripture is very clear. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. But there are occasions when that's not going to happen. And the Bible regulates polygamy without endorsing polygamy. So keep in mind the difference between regulation and endorsement. Secondly, and I'm going to quote Wayne Grudem here, who has a commentary on uh, 1 Peter. Here's what he says about slavery. The horrible degradation of slaves in, the 19th, in 19th century America gives the word slave a far worse connotation than is accurate for most of the society to which Peter was writing. In other words, we, we read the word slave, doulos is the word, and we, we think American slavery. Whips and chains and uh, just a horrible degradation. Okay? Although mistreatment of slaves could occur then too, it must be remembered that first century slaves were generally well treated and were not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of the various professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, skilled artisans. There was extensive Roman legislation regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. So a stronger word than servant, but weaker than slave is needed. Something meaning semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom, although servant comes the closest. No single English word is adequate. Okay? Now, I don't know that that would convince a person who's dead set against Christianity, but be careful that you don't read one picture of, of history into a different historical situation. Okay? Next question. Can't this call for Christians to submit lead to abuse? Yes. Okay, can't the call to submit to authority lead to abuse? Yes. Um, Al Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he uh, wrote an editorial called The Wrath of God Poured Out, The Humiliation of the Southern Baptist Convention. And let me, let me read most of it. He says, The last few weeks have been excruciating for the Southern Baptist Convention for the larger, and for the larger evangelical movement. It is as if bombs are dropping and God alone knows, knows how many will fall and where they will land. America's largest evangelical denomination has been in the headlines, day after day, the Southern Baptist Convention is in the midst of its own horrifying Me Too movement. 
as one, at one of our seminaries, controversy has centered on a president, now a former president, whose sermon illustration from years ago included advice that a battered wife remain in the home and the marriage in hope of the conversion of her abusive husband. Um, so stay, stay, stay. Right? Other uh, men within this denomination have been called out on adultery. But it's not just the Southern Baptists. It's, if you have your finger on the pulse of evangelicalism, um, there are pastors falling left and right to sexually inappropriate behavior. Now, uh, is all of it true? You know, we, you would have to be there for all of it. And, you know, some of it may be false, some of it may be true, but there's a lot being exposed. Now, Al Mohler asked this question. Is complementarianism the problem? Complementarianism would be the idea that God's design in the home um, would be that the husband is the leader and the wife is to submit to his leadership. So he raises the question, and by the way, his answer is going to be no. Is complementarianism the problem? Is it just camouflage for abusive males and permission for the abuse and mistreatment of women. We can see how that argument would seem plausible to so many looking to conservative evangelicals and wondering if we've gone mad. Um, so he's going to go on to say that complementarianism is still what the Bible teaches, but here's how I would answer the question. I think complementarianism, which is biblical, can be used as a cover for abuse of men. Right? I heard of, of one couple who went in to see the pastor and they were having problems in their marriage and he was a jerk. And um, the pastor said, let me see your Bible. And he took the guy's Bible and he, he paged through it and there was one verse highlighted. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not the husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay? So, Muller goes on to say this. But the same Bible that reveals the complementarian pattern of male leadership in the home and the church also reveals God's steadfast and unyielding concern for the abused, the threatened, the suffering, and the fearful. There's no excuse whatsoever for abuse of any form, verbal, emotional, physical, spiritual, or sexual. The Bible warns so clearly of those who would abuse power and weaponize authority. Every Christian church and every pastor and every church member must be ready to protect any of God's children threatened by abuse and must hold every abuser fully accountable. The church and any institution or ministry serving the church must be ready to assure safety and support to any woman or child or vulnerable one threatened by abuse. Now, there were uh, Roman laws that protected slaves. I don't know that there was much to protect wives. But today, we live in a society where we can avail ourselves of authority to help when we are abused. 
the Apostle Paul was about to be whipped, interrogated and whipped by some Roman soldiers. And Acts twenty two twenty five. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, just a little question for you before you whip me. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Pulling the legal card. Some would say, no, Paul, it's more godly to take the whip. And no, he's got legal protection as a Roman citizen, and it prevents him from being whipped. Okay? So, um, you don't need to submit to authority when they command you to sin. Yes, you can be involved in political dialogue. Just honor everyone, including the emperor. It's not necessarily more spiritual to stay in a difficult situation. And it's not wrong to claim the protection that the law affords you. But let's not lose the main point, which is honorable submission to authority glorifies God and draws unbelievers to him. Paul tells the Corinthian church, but all things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because God's a God of order. All right. So again, how's your evangelism going? Might it be crippled by a heart attitude that's anti-authoritarian. Right? Now, you say, but how do you live this way? And I'll, I'll end on this. Where do you get the power? Now, most of the time, the passion of the Christ is in its own category. He died for you. But there are a handful of places where the, the suffering of Christ is our example, too. And here's what Peter says. For this you have been called, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, and now he says, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth, in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Well, what's his secret? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, one, one reason we find it hard to not fight back. And we want revenge. Is because we all have a built-in justice detector or injustice detector. And to not fight back, to not seek revenge, just seems so unjust. 
But that's why Peter brings up the issue of God who judges justly. When you submit, it's not like injustice will be had. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm not going to be the one who seeks justice. I entrust it to God who judges justly. And think about this. All injustice that you have experienced will be punished in one of two places. Either on the cross, where your sins were punished, or in hell for eternity. Can you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? And then Peter ends this section reminding us of the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, Isaiah 53, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, what a uh, relevant, practical word written 2,000 years ago under a different situation, different government, different time, yet the human heart is still the same. So Lord, I pray uh, for all of us in this room that as we deal with injustice, as we deal with political conversations, as we deal with difficult work situations, maybe difficult family situations, that you would give us the grace to navigate in a way that honors all people, fears you, honors the emperor, and doesn't destroy our witness. And Lord, we need your guidance, your power, your strength, and your example. In Jesus' name, amen.